You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I ought to wring your neck. probably had his ear glued to the wall from the minute we came up here. Oh, forget it, darling. Please. You have stated that you're absolutely certain this is the man you saw in Nick's on both occasions. Now be careful, because on your answer may depend a man's life. Are you absolutely positive he's the same man? I am. No! Come on, son. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Maitland McDonough. I always love being here, Mike. Also with us this week is Ms. Sam Deegan. And I'm really excited to be here for the first time. We continue Noir-vember with a look at the 1940 film from Boris Inkster, Stranger on the Third Floor. It's the story of Michael Ward, a reporter who was the only witness to a murder at his local diner. When Michael and his best gal pal Jane attend the murder trial, Jane begins to doubt the guilt of the murderer. Wouldn't you know it, later in the film, Michael is accused of murder, a crime committed by the same stranger. This uh, movie is 76 years old, but I'm still going to say that we are going to be getting into spoilers on this episode. So if you don't want the movie ruined for you, please go watch it and come back. We will still be here. So, Maitland, when was the first time you saw Stranger on the Third Floor, and what did you think? I first saw Stranger on the Third Floor, I think, when I was in my first year of graduate school. And I saw it in a little room that was not a screening room. But there was a projector that you could roll in there, and you could project movies on the wall, which was not the ideal way to see it. But because I had been hearing about this movie for years, it was a complete and total thrill for me to actually see it projected. And I remember sitting there in that room just mesmerized by what a completely, totally, utterly bizarre movie this was. And it just got more and more bizarre as it went on. So it's actually one of my cherished memories from my college years. I saw it a couple of years ago because I started working on this book about that I'm still working on, almost finished, about World War II and cult cinema. And it was something I had never seen, but seemed like it would be good for my film noir chapter and had no idea what to expect and was totally blown away. Much like Maitland just said, it is 
definitely one of my best memories of films I watched for that chapter. Like, just so amazing. I saw this one, I don't know how long ago. I was on a real Peter Lorre kick for a while there, and uh, we'll be hearing from the person that put me on that Peter Lorre kick later on uh, in the show, Stephen Youngkin, whose biography of Lorre, The Lost One, is uh, pretty much essential reading, and was going through all these movies, and I thought that I was watching Stranger on the Third Floor and not really enjoying it, and then going back to it again recently, I'm like wait a second, no, this is totally not the movie I remembered. I, the, Sam and I were talking last week at dinner, and she was talking about how annoying the protagonist is, and I'm exactly. just like, yeah, that's that's what I remember, is this annoying protagonist, but that's it. And I don't remember the structure of the story, and then watching it today, I was like, okay, this guy isn't as bad as I remember, and I'm just curious if I even watch Stranger on the Third Floor, or if I watch something else completely different, because I was riveted watching this film, and just the structure of the movie really just grabbed me and and took me in. And I was so happy with this one. So I'm, I'm, have been very excited to talk to you guys about this movie just because it it, it really blew me away to watch it. Well, it's absolutely Borgesian. I mean, it is boxes within boxes, within boxes and flashbacks within flashbacks, within flashbacks. At a certain point, it's really easy to just sit there and think, okay, wait a minute. What flashback? What is this? How far into this rabbit hole have I fallen? It's it's really quite astonishing. This is something I thought about the first time I saw it when I actually kind of put together, okay, if this came out in 1940, how many directors saw this in just in terms of those flashbacks you're talking about and were really influenced by it? Because they're just so weirdly layered, like they shouldn't make sense, but they make perfect sense. We start off the the film, I would say, rather normally, but then once we hit a certain point in the movie, it just becomes this whole other thing. I mean, you can really feel the acts when you're watching this movie. And the first act, it's, you know, kind of like, hey, here's Jane, and she's saving this seat for, uh, you know, her boyfriend at this diner, and they're talking about getting this new apartment, and, you know, just very kind of like lovey-dovey kind of thing. And then we move into this trial where uh, Michael has uh, fingered Elijah Cook Jr. And, oh, my God, I just love watching Elijah Cook Jr. And he's on trial for murdering this guy uh, who ran a diner named Nick. So we're in one movie. And then later on in the film, we move into after Jane has really kind of put this whole thing out there as far as, well, what if Elijah Cook Jr., who's I love that his name is uh, uh, Joe Briggs, so I can think of (laughs) Joe Bob Briggs, you know, uh, what if Joe Bob Briggs was innocent of this stuff? And Michael never really actually saw the murder. He saw kind of the aftermath, but there were enough extenuating circumstances that really made Michael and made everybody else in the, the jury feel that this guy was, was uh, guilty. But the way that the trial is kind of sets up some stuff later on in the movie. The way that the trial is set up is fantastic in that you've got one of the jury members sleeping <laughs> and then the judge who is constantly like, what, huh? Not paying attention at all during this trial. And it's just like, wow, really saying something about our justice system with this. You're a newspaper reporter, Mr. Warren. Yes. Sir. As a newspaper reporter, you're uh, a trained observer of men. and I events. object. Eh? What? I object to this line of questioning, Your Honor. Oh, 
there's a Disney cartoon where I think Pluto has a nightmare where he's sent to hell and he's tried by by this jury of cats. And the first time I saw this movie, it made me think of that. You're on trial today for the crimes that you've committed. We're going to prove you're guilty. Just try and get acquitted. Because it is, it's just, there's something so absurd about the whole thing that you don't realize it's going in that direction. But I think Inkster sets it up really well because everyone at the trial is just kind of horrible. Like no one is sympathetic at all to Briggs, except for Jane's character, who's traumatized when he's, he just like shrieks over and over again that he's innocent. I didn't kill him. I'm really glad you mentioned cartoons because it completely reminded me of early Max Fleischer cartoons in which these little kind of cute bobbing up and down black and white cartoon characters fall into these incredibly bizarre, psychedelic, it's hard not to think drug-induced worlds where up is down and left is right and everything is completely, utterly bizarre. That's exactly what the second half of this movie is like. Every, you know, the first half, as both of you said, is really pretty ordinary. The you know, guy, girl, guy's a reporter, you know, girl is, is kind of following what he's doing. And then suddenly they fall into this world where absolutely nothing makes sense to them. Absolutely everything is topsy turvy and everything is positively psychedelic in black and white. We don't really get a voiceover. You know, normally, like, we will talk in the second half of the show as, as far as film noir and conventions of film noir, and one of those is a voiceover narration. And we talked last week, Maitland, about Decoy and the voiceover that happens in that. And we do get a voiceover narration, but it's interesting that it doesn't really start until the beginning of what I would consider the second act. And then it's just this... It's Mike uh, Michael as our, our voiceover person and some great lines. I have to say the way that he goes up to the diner and uh, Nick's name has been replaced by, uh, I think, Jack and how he just talks about how, you know, how easy it is for people to move on with this stuff. And kind of I think that really helps bring us into him and bring us into Michael and bring us into his psyche and really makes this second act of the film much more powerful because then he becomes our complete narrator. There are so many moments of the second act that are just him thinking and no dialogue whatsoever. It just becomes him talking to himself and basically kind of driving himself crazy because he goes up to his apartment. He uh, hears the, his next door neighbor snoring he goes into his apartment and can still hear the guy snoring, and uh, he sees out of the corner of his eye this movement and looks around and hides himself in the shadows, and he sees Peter Lorre come out. And Peter Lorre, who just absolutely owns this movie, can do it in, what, five minutes worth of screen time? I mean, he's barely on the screen at all, but he just... his his figure is looms large over everything with this movie. And he is such a fantastic character and the way that he looks. And this is young Peter Laurie before he got his teeth fixed. So he just has this kind of like uh, menacing look to him. His eyes are really buggy in this. His teeth look really horrible. And just the way he kind of sneaks around on these steps 
man, it just uh, really does it to you. And then after that, it's just all Michael thinking and Michael remembering and Michael taking us through all of these things. So I'm glad that, you know, they, they use the voiceover very, very effectively here. That transition from when you see the neighbor and Mike becomes more paranoid and sort of starts descending into madness, it kind of reminds me of the tenant in the way that his neighbors are all very subtly trying to control him and manipulate him and make his natural inclination to paranoia so much more pronounced. And I really love that sort of absurdist, like Kafka-esque element to it. I think The Tenant is a great movie to reference when you're talking about Stranger on the Third Floor because it you're exactly right. It has that kind of incredible paranoia and also really evokes what it's like to be going deeper and deeper into your own head where you begin to lose perspective completely and have no idea what things you're thinking are reasonable and what things you're thinking are kind of bug house crazy, which is where Mike is going throughout this movie. Yeah, that great scene where after his amazing dream sequence, he wakes up in the armchair just drenched in sweat, sort of muttering to himself, he's alive, he's alive, or full-on crazy by that point. I'd say Polanski was kind of a master when it came to people stuck in apartments going crazy because I was reminded a little bit of repulsion, especially, I guess, because of the black and white photography and just the way that Deneuve is driving herself mad in there. And it's great that Mike is in this apartment and he doesn't necessarily ever really leave. He seems to leave via his flashbacks, but for the most part, he's like stuck in this apartment room and thinking of all these times. And I love the way, you know, I forgot to mention that when he talks about his, uh, his neighbor, the way that he calls him a, a snoring animal, <laughs> he's just, he's not very kind to uh, what Albert Meng is the next door neighbor's name. And just all of the times he goes back and starts remembering all the times that he has threatened to kill Mang, and just uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't come off very well. The more we go on, I mean, Mang is—he's kind of a pain in the ass, but I think Michael kind of overreacts to him sometimes, so dramatically. Well, and I, I think when I said to you that I really hate <laughs> this protagonist, I, I think you're supposed to, but or you're at least supposed to dislike him. But in his flashbacks, I think is when you really start to see this ugly side of him emerge. Like when he's the flashback where he's sitting down at the diner with his boss and his boss has this great line. That's one of my favorite lines in the movie. He says, there's murder in every intelligent man's heart. And instead of just sort of casually agreeing with him, it leads Mike to talk about how he wants to stab him and picks up the knife at the table. And his boss is like, okay, I think you need to calm down. The thing that's great about Mike is that, yes, clearly he's the protagonist and we are meant to identify with him. But the further we go into this film, the harder it is to maintain that identification because he's nuts. He is losing it consistently for, I would say, two-thirds of this movie. And yet, you are kind of invested in him. He does seem as though he is the guy who's supposed to be the reasonable person. I mean, he's a reporter. You know, he's somebody that you expect is going to be gathering the facts and making rational assessments of what's going on. And yet, he is a bundle of sweat and twitches and craziness. 
there's this really interesting way that they play with themes of guilt and greed. And even though he starts off as this sort of plucky, determined reporter who wants to make a name for himself so he can marry his girlfriend, it sort of seems like even though he is telling the truth, he he did see Alicia Cook Jr.'s character in the diner, and it is plausible that he could be the murderer. He gets kind of carried away with this idea of getting a byline and making a name for himself. And it seems like that is what pushes him over the edge so far. When that byline really comes back and the whole idea of, you know, having the, you know, he talks about how many column widths he has, how many inches of copy he gets and the size of the headline. And that really comes back to bite him in his dream sequence when he suddenly becomes accused of murder inside of this dream sequence. And the the newspaper, I mean, it's like half of the masthead. It just says murder so big across it. I've never, you know, like even if the, the, you know, if, God forbid the the Cubs win the World Series. I can't imagine that the headline would be as large as that would be, just screaming murder. Just this one guy has has committed a murder so (laughs) heinous. And my God, that dream sequence is just one of the most lovely things that I've seen. And it kind of puts... Nearly every other dream sequence that I've seen to shame. I mean, people talk about the dream sequence in Spellbound, and I'm just like, yeah, that really doesn't do it for me nearly as much as this one in Stranger on the Third Floor. They really pull out all of the stops to just make this thing as memorable as it possibly can be. I wonder how many times Orson Welles saw this, because the newspaper scenes where it like goes into that weird montage with the giant murder type face that you were talking about definitely reminded me of Citizen Kane, but even more so the dream sequence, there's stuff in there that made me think of the trial, which is one of my favorite Wells films. It's so early. I I have to wonder what Inkster was influenced by. And I, I don't know. You know, Spellbound is a movie that you think of when you look at this. I think if you've seen both of these films, it's hard not to connect them. And what's kind of astonishing to me is that I think the dream sequence in this movie is infinitely more sophisticated than the dream sequence in Spellbound, despite the fact that we're talking about an Alfred Hitchcock film. That sequence is so much more obvious with all those crisscrossing lines and all of that nonsense. In this film, it really is Kafka-esque nightmare, and which is why I'm glad you mentioned Kafka. It is something that begins in something that looks like a world that you recognize and then plunges into a world that is so nightmarish that it's really hard to connect it to that real world. And yet you, you see completely the steps that got you from one to the other. I think it's a real tour de force, and you can pull that sequence out, I think, and show it by itself, and pretty much anybody you would show it to would say, holy cow, that is really one amazing piece of filmmaking. And it's multiply amazing because this was not a big-budget movie. Boris Inkster was not a particularly well-thought-of filmmaker. I'm sure there were plenty of people who recognized that he was talented at the time he was working, but I think if you say Boris Inkster to most people who think of themselves as film buffs, they're probably going to say, uh, who's that? His, I, I think his talent greatly exceeds the reputation he has now. 
Oh, totally agreed. I mean, the only reason I even knew his name because like other than this film is because I was writing about a couple of years ago, it was writing about Fritz Long's Cloak and Dagger, and he did script work on that. And there are some interesting parallels, like the, the paranoia, but I I wonder why his career was never bigger. It seems such a shame. Yeah, that he only directed three films that we know of, and you know he definitely did a lot of script work and producing and everything. But you know, when you think of early film noir and you think of this uh, expressionistic uh, lighting and set design and everything, you think of, obviously of the Germans, and it's just like, okay, well, I know Fritz Lang, I know Edgar Almer, why don't I know this guy? You know, because this was just such an amazing i mean everything about this film not just this particular sequence but so much of this movie just really stands out as far as some of the lighting some of the set design the way that that characters are framed and everything but yes this dream sequence is just as you said it's a tour de force to look at the way that we're using foreground versus background there's one moment where we have uh people in the foreground and then if you look close enough and they do show it a little bit closer later on you can see all the jury members everyone all of the jury is asleep in that case and uh, the way oh my god the way that the judge changes <laughs> from being the judge into that statue of justice with the scythe in his other hand i mean come on this is insane and and it's so well done i mean it just that dissolve from one to the other is it's just marvelous and the way that they use the the set of the courtroom it just seems to go on forever, and it is the the way that the lighting comes up on the walls to to give you that texture of everything, and it almost looks like the fires of hell are burning on the walls. It's breathtaking. And I think one of the things that makes it particularly breathtaking is that when you look at the use of, of light and shadow and the use of perspective and the use of diagonal lines in the background it's very easy to say, oh, well, these are really, they are common film noir tropes, but this movie was made in 1940. It precedes everything that we yeah. think of as classic film noir, and yet it is there fully formed. It, it, you don't look at it and say, wow, this is a really kind of interesting precursor. I can see that it's working towards the kind of imagery and the kind of thematic material we associate with noir. It's like, no, it's all there. Yeah, to call this thing a proto-noir would be an insult to it. It has all of the trappings. The only thing, and I know we'll talk about this later, the only thing I can say that doesn't necessarily make this 100% noir to me is the ending, and that there's a happy ending as opposed to death and damnation. <laughs> but, but otherwise, I mean, yes, and it's using it's using the noir trappings so effectively. In so far as this is a low budget movie, and they're making it feel big budget through the use of the shadows, through what they're doing with the photography, they make what could be a very very simple story into so much more, just through the way that they shoot it, the way that it is acted, the way that it is put together, the script for it. I mean, just the idea of we're going to put our character into a room for 
for so long, and he's not going to know if his neighbor is dead. Uh, I wrote in my notes that that uh, Albert Meng for a while becomes like Schrodinger's cat. You know, we don't know if he's alive or he's dead, and until they open up that door, he's both. And it's just a matter of like, okay, is he going to ever open up that door? And I love when he goes when Michael goes to the door at one point before he has the dream sequence to open up the door, and he suddenly hears a voiceover in his own head of the uh, uh, about the uh, use of fingerprints, and he's just like. Uh, and then he completely forgets about it later on when he goes to open up the door. I'm just like, you fool! <laughs> At least there's something on the doorknob. But nope, he just goes right in. Even though there's the happy ending, there's something about it that's really creepy. It's I could imagine a more contemporary filmmaker if they, you know, had made this now or in the last 20 years having that be a dream sequence because it's just so almost surreal how they sit back down at the diner, but now he orders eggs instead of toast. And then Alicia Cook Jr. is there, (laughs) is there to open a door to a cab for them to get in and is smiling and happy and isn't, you know, resentful that Mike sent him to prison. It just, it's very strange. There's one moment during the dream sequence where I'm like, Okay, are we out of the dream sequence? Are we out of it forever now? And we're just going to think that we're still in the dream sequence? But then it plunges back into insanity again. But there's a moment when uh, Jane is talking to Michael. I didn't do it, Jane. I didn't. It was that man I saw. Nobody believes me. But you do. Don't you? I'm just like, okay, is this, are we out of this now or not? And so you saying that maybe the ending is a dream. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, uh, and I know this is a, a weird reference, but it reminds me of uh, Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans, <laughs> where all of a sudden at the end, everything goes right. And it just doesn't make any sense because everything has been so bad for so long for these characters. And then it's like, hey, you're, you know, your winnings are here and hey, this happened. And yeah, you just got promoted. Just all of these crazy things happen where it, it feels like almost like a sitcom or a comedy where, all of a sudden, all of the bad things suddenly turn great. So, yeah, having Elijah Cook Jr. there opening up the door, like, hey, free of charge. I'm like, okay, wow. I mean, you at least wrapped up that plot line, but in a sense, it makes it even more, as you said, strange and, and kind of crazy and creepy that here he is, you know, come on in. I'll give you a free ride. I'm just like thinking, free ride right to hell, buddy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, and it all actually made me think of uh, a term that I think Barry Gifford coined, which was Jim, uh, which was Jim Thompson's trap door, where you know you think you get how bad the story has become, and you think you really understand the ultimate depravity of it, and you see where the characters are going and what's going to happen to them, and then whoops, Jim Thompson's trap door opens, and they fall into hell. That's what that feels like. I really wish that, you know, the era of director commentary tracks and Blu-ray special features was around so that somebody could interview him at length on where he came up with some of these things and how he conned RKO into into doing them. 
I would also like to know as far as the script goes, because I've read that this was kind of um, rewritten or had some input from Nathaniel West as well. And I've always been curious as far as Nathaniel West's career when he went out to Hollywood. You know, I've always been curious as far as, you know, they, they, they talk a lot about Clifford Odets being kind of the model for Barton Fink. But I'm always curious about that era of Hollywood when you had these writers coming out from the East Coast or other parts of the country to Southern California and working on these movies when they really had no right to be working on those movies and some of them flourished and some of them failed and it's just always one of those things where it's like, okay, well, what part of this did Nathaniel West play in bringing some of this darkness to it? You know, how much of this, you know, because reading, you know, Miss Lonely Hearts and, and Day of the Locust and some of his other work, I mean, he could get really super dark. And so some of the darker moments of this movie, I'm just like, hmm, I wonder how much of that is West's influence. Obviously, nothing on the visuals, I'm sure, but just on the story itself, it's like, okay, um, you know, it's interesting too that the way that we have our character convincing himself of his own guilt through so much of this through the f- flashbacks through the, uh, the the dream sequence and then we go from having Mike as a protagonist suddenly to having Jane as our protagonist which isn't a very unusual thing to just switch horses midstream like that so Frank Pardos who I think also worked on the script also worked on The Uninvited and House on Telegraph Hill, which both are really dark and both have really strong female characters. So I wonder if that was his influence at all, kind of having her really be the only likable character, but also having her very strangely, as you said, kind of come in and very unexpectedly be the hero of the film. Jane, at the beginning... It seems to be a very conventional character and, as the film goes on, becomes much more not only the moral center, but the center that anchors this film into some kind of reality as it goes on. You know, she is um, yeah, very much a, a conventional woman of her time. She loves her boyfriend. She wants to get married. She's smart, but doesn't try to make it clear that she is smarter than he is, frankly. And yet by the end of the film, she is the person you remember most. You know, the supposed main character in this movie kind of recedes into the background while she comes to the foreground because she is such an unforced, smart, interesting-centered character. And I find that very interesting about this movie, given the fact that women in films of this period generally weren't given that kind of center stage, especially not in such a sneaky way. Yeah, and I love that the way that she kind of figures out Laura or runs into Laura and figures out that he's the killer is sheerly through kindness and patience and perseverance. She doesn't she's not ambitious. She's not crafty. She just it's it's such an unusual and like you were saying, it's kind of like a subtle way to do it that winds up being so powerful and so unexpected. Yeah, she's out there pounding the streets, trying to help Mike out, trying to find this person. The uh, She's got a great description for him, having bug eyes <laughs> and the, the white scarf, and just can't find anybody that matches that description. And it's just happenstance that she's at you know this burger place or at this diner, and here comes Lori into the picture. 
even though he's murdered two people, he is so sympathetic. Just in his few minutes on screen that he comes in and he orders these two raw hamburgers for this dog that's followed him. And he's so kind to the dog. And just the way that he so patiently explains how when Nick and, and Albert Meng said that they had to, you know, call the authorities and send him back to an insane asylum, he's just like, well, of course I had to kill them. Oh, that man. When he said he was going to report me, I, I had to kill him. What's the matter? Nothing. And Jane, fortunately, is able to handle that. I mean, she freaks out a little bit after she goes to another stranger trying to help for uh, trying to get some help. And I love the way that the stranger just pretty much fucks her over. And especially it's like, well, I'll call the police myself, like saying it really super loud. And it's like, whoa, whoa, you know, just, hey, I'm trying to get some help, you know. And uh, she's the kind of person that would probably be uh, uh, on Mike's jury, you know, later on in the film if he ended up going to jail for it. Jane just handles herself so well and is able to deal with the situation. I mean, there is also Providence and a truck that's coming by, but really, she's she's got it pretty much under control here. She freaks out at the end when, you know, the truck hits him. She cries for maybe 10 seconds up against this light post, but gets it together and is able to say coherently that, that he's the murderer. And fortunately, we have a deathbed confession or a, yes, um, a, conveniently. A, gut, a gutter confession, I should say. I think one of the things we also have to mention is that for a movie that is very much a Peter Lorre film, Peter Lorre is barely in this movie. It's amazing how little screen time he has. He is, on the one hand, key to the story that we're seeing. On the other hand, he is barely there. And I think it's kind of fascinating. And frankly, the single biggest impression of him that I come away from this film with is the way he flicks that scarf over his shoulder and the way he feeds the hamburgers to the dog, because, of course, I'm a softie for animals. But he makes a, a remarkable impression for somebody who is barely in the film. And it's not just because he's Peter Lorre, because although... By the time this film was made, he certainly was Peter Lorre. He wasn't any kind of a star. He was somebody who was a, a really striking character player. And he completely dominates this film, even though he's barely in it. From what I've heard, they, and by they I mean RKO, apparently had some sort of arrangement with him where they he owed them a little bit of screen time and agreed to appear in the film. And I wonder if his performances in M and The Man Who Knew Too Much were part of how they designed his costume and gave him direction. He is genuinely handsome as Joel Cairo in The Maltese Falcon. And here, I won't say he's disgusting because I, I think that he still has just fascinating features, but just the, the, the teeth and the baby fat and the buggy eyes and everything. He, it's amazing to think that this guy, if you took a picture of him and held it up next to Joel Cairo, it's like, really, these are the same guys. You know, like you can kind of see it in some of their features, but really he could make himself and he physically made himself different. He got his teeth fixed at some point before Maltese Falcon, I think. But just to, to see the difference between what he looked like in those two pictures, that, that scarf uh, affect that he has and then the shot of him during the dream sequence 
kind of coming across those seats in the the theater of the courtroom. I don't know what it was, but if I had been in a theater, I think I would have jumped out of my seat seeing that. And I have to say that I never found him attractive as Joel Cairo, and I think the big thing was his hair in that film. (laughs) That very odd, ringlety hair that was clearly not natural. I mean, he must have spent a good hour just having his hair curled. So the way he looks in this film is actually a little bit more attractive to me, particularly because he doesn't look the way he looks in M, where he was quite heavy before he came to Hollywood and he was put on on the Hollywood studio diet, which I'm sure involved a whole lot of uppers that probably helped give him that twitchy look that he has in a, a lot of his early Hollywood films. But if there is something quite sadly handsome about him in this movie that's, uh, that's very striking. I think that's the thing that I took away from this more than anything else is you've both said, even though he's only in the film for what, maybe five minutes total, he just he feels like he comes from another world. Like he seems almost not even human. Like he's sympathetic and horrific, but also... I would agree, kind of beautiful. He manages to be one of the most sympathetic characters. Like, even though he's a murderer, I feel more for him than I do for Mike, which might be kind of twisted on my part, but I felt genuinely sad that he felt he is kind of a more typical film noir protagonist in that he is actually pursued, you know, and, and he's trying to get away from the people that want to lock him up. You know, there are so many great noir protagonists who are accused of things that they didn't commit or maybe they did and they're getting kind of overly punished by the hand of God. But he's got such genuine good reasons for killing people. Just, you know, if you're, if you're going to try to turn me in and make me go back to that asylum – that's pretty much it. I just, I have to kill you. That's that's all that I can possibly do. Why do they want to lock you up? Oh, so they can hurt me. They, they put you in a shirt with uh, long sleeves and they pour ice water on you. Oh, that's terrible. I think one of the, the major reasons that characters do things in noir films is because they're hunted, whether they're hunted by their own nightmares, their own pasts, or whether some other person is actively hunting them. And he, I think, embodies that hunted character completely. Yeah, you can always see him kind of skulking around uh, Germany, you know, in M. I mean, just that that famous image of him trying to get away from the letter M on his back and trying to see what's there. Just it, it's like he uh, is just pursued by that mark, and that's kind of the way that he played a lot of these characters is just being pursued by something, whether it was justified or not. All right, we are going to take a break and play an interview with Stephen D. Youngkin, author of The Lost One, A Life of Peter Lorre, right after these brief messages. (laughs) 
Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. Hey, Projection Booth listeners. I'm Chris Stashu, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor. And we are the hosts of The Culture Cast. Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old, often centered around monthly genres. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. <laughs> Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at cultureshock.com slash culturecast. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. My name is Stephen, and I guess I would call myself a writer. And unfortunately, I've only specialized on the subject at this point. I'm working on something else now, but uh, there it is. How did you get interested and decide to write kind of the ultimate tome on Peter Lorre? I've told that story so many times that my wife usually takes over and spares me. And honest to God, she does a great job. And I go out for dinner or something, and someone says, how, how did you get interested in Peter Lorre? I did somebody turn to her, and she is, is far more succinct about it. But when I was a kid, um, I lived in rural Iowa. I did not have exposure to old movies. And a few would filter through, and oddly enough, and ironically enough, one of the films I saw as a, as a young man was a story about a female whose face is burned in fire, and he turns to crime. At the time, I loved the film, and it, and it had my attention, and I remembered it. But I had no idea that was Peter Laurie. And only years later, many, many years later, when I became interested in Laurie and started you know, catching up on his films at the Library of Oz, um, that, that something like 40 or 50 of his movies and lots of TV, I went, oh my God, that was a Laurie film. So I went to college. Um, at that point, there were a lot of films that were kick off. You could see, oh, John Roger Corman or Chris Hang or German Expressionism, just theme or actual director's words for, for almost nothing. And it just opened a new world to me. Like, wow. I mean, I had never heard. I had probably heard of Humphrey Bogart, of Errol Flynn, of any of the big stars. And so I became very interested in cinema history. And, uh, but one of the films I saw uh, was Comedy of Terrors, which was you know, one of Laurie's last films, actually his next to last film. And it struck me that, um, that this man was projecting a comic exterior, but the thing that he seemed very Head underneath, like he was pushing, and he didn't smell. And I thought, huh, interesting, interesting. So I went to the library and I thought, I'm going to read up a little bit about this. I think by that time I'd also seen him, and I couldn't reconcile an actor beginning his career in him and achieving international stardom, I mean, catapulted international stardom, with Patty, Jerry Lewis's 
Patsy Muscle, excuse me, Muscle Beach Party at the end. And what happened? Just you know, start so high and hit so low. And uh, I found nothing. And um, I started toying with the idea, wow, maybe I was working on a PhD at the time and in Indian studies. So this far afield from what I was academically pursuing, it just turned out that my mentor, who's now at Indiana University, friends with an anthropologist at the University of Arizona called Ben Fontana, and he was a close friend of Vincent Price. So that um, that was my connection, my introduction to Price. I had a new mentor called Fontana, and Fontana called Price, and Price called me and said he'd be very happy to help me. But that's how I finally got my foot in the door, the idea of doing a flight biography. So uh, from there, Price put me in contact with the family, Stoyanovsky, and uh, it was just that germ of an idea. Here's a, here's a man who uh, appears to be comic, who beneath is tragic to me. But, uh, that was that was by the beginning, and you know, I was never sure I was going to write a biography. And I heard that two fellows back east were working on the film of, or, or had posted the idea of a filmography to Alan Wilson at Citadel Press. And I had two earlier. And he, I still have a letter from him saying, we don't feel there's sufficient interest in people to do a book on him at this point. Well, they changed their mind, and, and uh, we, we ended up, Ray Cabana and James Bigwin and, and myself ended up you know, collaborating on that book. So that, uh, that is how it all got started. How long was it between when you first broached the subject and spoke with Vincent Price until the book actually came out in 2005? Okay, well, that, that, that's embarrassing, okay? I'm sure it's at least 25 years because, I mean, I was still working on my PhD and kind of uh, pursuing the filmography and interviewing people on, on the side. I realized that if I was ever going to do a book on Peter Laurie, I needed to get to the people you know, with whom he had worked, the family, when they were still living. The idea of a book had not really taken shape, but I needed to like, I need to go to California. I need to interview these people and, and contact them and get everything I can by way of oral history. And then I need to decide later what I'm going to do with it. It was a long time. So there were actually periods where I'd set the book aside for years, but I would keep interviewing people. But I wasn't writing. I was just kind of uh, accumulating information and uh, kind of filing it away. And there were some points I just became discouraged with it. I thought I'd never finish it. And people likewise thought, oh my, he's never going to finish this book. It goes on and on and on and on. Well, there's some pluses to spending that much time on it. And there's a lot of minuses too. For one of the things is that um, people would say, you know, you're going to wait so long, no one's going to remember Peter Laurie. And that bothered me. It's like, yeah, you're right. Because I meet younger and younger people all the time who have no idea who he is or anyone else from that period. I mean, their, their memories go back, don't even go back to Star Wars. I kept thinking there's not going to be an audience or a publisher who's going to pick this up because Laurie has been become more forgotten with the, with the passing years. And that really concerned me. But, um, I guess it was my wife that finally prodded me with the, you know, the cattle prod to, to finish the thing. But uh, it took me it took me a long time, and that is kind of a uh, kind of a sensitive point. So, so thank you for bringing it up. It must have been kind of a struggle for you to when you're putting together the filmography to even find all the films that he had done, uh, just because he had been in what over a hundred movies. 
Yeah, I don't know what the number is. The number changes because he's credited with a few movies that he actually wasn't in, like uh, there's Device of Demand, The White Demon, uh, which was a, a film directed by Kurt Guerin um, in Germany about uh, about cocaine. And there was also, he credited on um, IMDb with appearing in Device of Teufel and The White Devil. And I'm not sure how that happened unless someone confused the two because the titles are so similar. But when I was in Germany um, researching the book, I found a cast list for um, Device of Teufel. I looked through all the leads, the principles. I looked down. They had a huge paragraph of the minor characters, or, um, minor actors playing small roles. And Roy's name wasn't among them. So it's hard to kind of come up sometimes with the actual, actual total. But Library of Congress at that point, and I'm talking back in the 70s here, 70s, maybe early 80s, they had a huge, you know, film collection, motion picture section of Library of Congress. And even at that time, I think they had almost all of Laurie's films on 16, original 16 millimeter prints. And they had a few, um, television shows. And I actually started collecting 16 millimeter only because at that time these films were available. There were no DVDs. I mean, there were commercial videos, but a lot of these Laurie films simply were not available. So I was buying some of these things on 16mm, and my original prints I will donate to the motion picture section. And I also collected quite a few original television shows, which I will donate too. Those are harder to come by, of course. But uh, most everything is available these days. It's easy. Even the German films are pretty pretty easy to come by. And Jim Bigwood, um, who co-authored the films of Peter Lorre, actually screened that one film that he did before M. Visible Lady, I can't remember the the, the, the translation. Uh, it's one where Murray has no no lines. He's just a, a patient in a dentist's office. Oh, uh, the missing wife. That's it. Yeah, that, I guess that was it. He actually screened that, and he actually got a whole bunch of um, blow up frame loops for me, which I used a couple of those in the, in the biography. I went to Germany, um, actually went to East Germany, and smuggled in tapes, just cassette tapes, to at least tape the sound from the original nitrate 35mm prints at the Stasi Spielmarkt in East Berlin in those days. And it was pretty tough locating these things, but, uh, you know, now it's easy. Now you can pretty much find anything commercially available or available on, you know, YouTube or whatever. So there is one horror film that, uh, that they believe the stole this one of the German film. But other than that, everything's pretty available. And various archives have some of the TV prints. It was much, much harder for me to see these things than it is now. I mean, everything, everything's commercially available now. So I'm curious, as far as um, the interviews uh, that you did, um, I mean, of course, you were kind of racing against time to make sure that you could actually speak to as many people as you could before they passed away, I imagine. Yes, I was racing. And some people, I didn't get in time, or some people, like Henry Blanke, who was you know, the big producer at Warner Brothers, was this, this poor health that there was no point sitting next to him and posing questions because he, he, he couldn't really answer them. But uh, yeah, it was a race against time. I mean, and I'm glad, I, I'm glad I did it. Um, there were people I wish I had contacted. You know, I, I, I did interview a lot of people. You had mentioned to me via email that you actually contacted or you spoke to more women than men for some reason. I probably interviewed more men altogether than women, but it, 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 where I think 
my most interesting um, interviewees. Uh, Lori loved women, okay? And he had a real European sense about women. He's a chivalrous and, uh, I kiss your hand and that kind of thing. And, uh, he wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't gropey like Donald Trump or anything, but, um, he was very respectful, but he loved women. He tended to open up to women. Um, I interviewed producers, directors. I think I interviewed and or corresponded with 26 directors that Lori worked with TV and film. And I interviewed screenwriters and actors and actresses and a makeup man and a stuntman. And my stuntman was one of my most interesting interviews, which was, of course, Harvey, the legend Harvey Perry. But it, it, the women, they gave me more insight than any single actor, except for maybe Vincent Price. Um, he was a very bright man and very insightful. But um, the women, Laurie just unattended to pour his hearts out to them. I'm thinking of Joyce Jameson, uh, Hazel Court. I can't think of her name, but the woman who comes as co-star in um, Crime and Punishment. Marion Marsh. Marion Marsh. Thank you very, very much. Yeah. I mean, terrific interview, tremendous insights. Women read him like a book. I mean, he just seemed so much more vulnerable to them than the men, which, you know, which is pretty natural, I suspect. They were by far the most interesting people to talk to. They surprised me. Every single time they would surprise me about what they had picked up between the lines. Charles Jameson, especially, at the very end, telling me how, how much Laurie was suffering doing any of the physical stuff in the comedy of pairs, like splitting some wood, and how sometimes he would just confess to them that he just can't do this. He's running down. His health is poor. Yeah, uh, I loved interviewing the women the most. And they, and they gave me the best anecdotes. I'm, I'm glad I went heavily toward the women on, on this once I, once I kind of discovered that. Can you tell me a little bit about his emigration to the U.S.? And he was Jewish, so I imagine that Germany wasn't the most comfortable place for him uh, during the, the his early days in the 30s. His father was Jewish. His mother was Catholic. Um, Lori was never a religious person, ever. His father, however, was an assistant rabbi and a fervent Zionist. The day of the Reichstag fire, which was February 25th, 1933, Lori was involved in the making of a uh, Samson film called uh, invisible opponent. Well, people told different versions of this. Uh, I think he was all trying to improve on it. But the one he told me, he was at his barber, who was a member of the SA. In some other versions, he was a member of the SS. But he whispered to Siegel, um, his Spiegel, uh, don't go home tonight. Uh, the warning extended to his film cast and crew, and uh, they faced arrest and worse. So with just a script and a few marks in hand, he simply walked through the station. He took this very seriously. He laughed and then joked with the ticket agent that he had been going on vacation, despite the fact he had no suitcase. And he was on his way to Vienna, uh, where they were going to transfer filming uh, there. And Laurie took a different train, but uh, he made it out. You know, nonetheless, they both ended up staying at the Hotel Imperial in, in Vienna. Two days later, the Reichstag fire degree suspended civil liberties, so they had gotten out just in time. But in Berlin, Fritz Lang and Brecht tried to keep Laurie in the political loop, uh, which was not always easy. Laurie's naivete drove Lang absolutely crazy. And Fidelowski told me a story once that Lang became so exasperated with Laurie's head-in-the-sand attitude that he just absolutely blew up and became so insulting that he said something that she wouldn't even repeat to me, despite my efforts to get her to do so. But Lori was by now was in Vienna, so no Brett, no Lori, uh, keeping on the, on the front page. And in fact, the, the strangest thing, from Vienna, she wrote 
a little note to Mind Film, which was a very popular movie magazine at the time, that all is good. And I kept thinking, God, where, where is this his head? Um, I suppose it was good for him because he'd gotten out by the skin of his teeth, but it certainly wasn't, it was hardly good for anyone else who didn't. Um, you know, studios had seen the writing on the wall and had begun easing up Jews before this. And in April, after that February, the Reichstag fired, there was a ban on Jews in the film industry, and then later it became even tighter. By then, in April of 33, Lori was appearing as Jew in uh, Golgotha in, uh, in Vienna. So, uh, and pretty soon the anti Semitic clamor had gotten pretty loud there also. So he and Celia um, traveled to Czechoslovakia to visit her mother, and then fearing that the Nazis were one step behind, they wanted to keep moving. And like so many refugees, they, they headed to Paris. They heard work you know, could be found there, which was not really true, but they gathered together in uh, this cheap hotel and kind of supported each other. And, and so Laurie was in um, Paris for about a year, made uh, one small film appearance, thanks to the largesse of a friend who knew he was really in trouble. But uh, people at the Vermont British heard that he, in London, heard that he was in Paris and in need of work. And they hired him immediately for the man who knew so much. In a tiny role, uh, Michael Balkan, director of production, part of the red tape and, you know, paid his travel expenses and got him over. But once Hitchcock met him, they discarded the idea of, of, of casting him in such a small role and they actually put him in the lead. So that was, uh, that was huge for him, of course. I mean, he had broken in. And here's a refugee scurrying out of Germany and all of a sudden he's in a major Hitchcock you know, production. But uh, I don't know if you've seen the Kurt Guerin documentary, Prisoner of Paradise, but uh, in that documentary, uh, the point is made that Guerin, who had directed Laurie and Devices and also he was an actor in Bombs Over Monte Carlo, that he had covered Laurie's travel expenses to Hollywood. But actually, once Laurie was in England, the casting director cabled Harry Kahn at Columbia Pictures for a clearance decision to sign Laurie. So, true to form, Laurie likely just simply inveigled money out of Garon to um on the pretense of uh, financing his trip to America, but he was using it for drugs. And and this was a, a pattern this was a pattern in his entire life. We would come up with a really good idea why he needed money that he was actually using for, for morphine. Uh, to Garon's credit, he and oh, the uh, Paul Falkenberg, the editor of M, who was also in Paris at the time, did finance um some treatment for Laurie's drug problem in Paris. I mean, a lot of his friends kicked in for that, so. And, of course, he came to America and, uh, in July of 34. And the uh, interesting thing about that, if you look at the immigration records, the actual manifest that had the interview, where they pose any number of questions like, are you an anarchist? Do you want to overthrow the American government? That sort of thing. That really fun things. He and Celia told the immigration officer that they had no intention of becoming U.S. citizens. In fact, they... They didn't even come, they weren't forthcoming about the fact that Colombia had paid their fare. In those days, refugees just didn't want to burn bridges. I mean, they'd already found work in um, in England. So it was like, well, let's, now let's not burn our bridges here. Let's, let's keep our options open. On the other hand, Laurie was, um, he always believed in this grand design that Hollywood was the ultimate destination. He was, yeah, yeah. Uh, as I say, he was more swept along than sweeping. He just, there was a grand fate for him. And he knew that the the final destination was going to be Hollywood. That that's where he would end up. You mentioned his addiction to morphine. How long had he been addicted to morphine at this point? Let's see. This is 1934 when he came to America. So about 12 years. He he became addicted in the early 20s. 
through a, basically a bust appendectomy. And at the time, the morphine was so liberally prescribed. So and later, it became a problem. He was forging prescriptions, and uh, he, he was so charming. And he made, made friends with so many doctors, and he charmed them on auto-prescriptions. And Billy Wilder tells this wonderful story on their own. But on the train, the, uh, the famous uh, east-west or west-east train that all the celebrities took, he ran out, of his, ran out of morphine, and he started having some real health issues, like he wanted to throw himself out the window, basically. And uh, so they stopped in Santa Fe. He found his way to the hospital and, and uh, to a doctor. And then all of a sudden, later in the trip, I don't know if it was New York, it's in the book, um, here's Lori riding high, happy, and he had charmed someone, not only out of a prescription, but a fairly sizable amount of morphine to continue his trip. And he did this all the time. I mean, yeah, I mean, person at place, when he was much less known, he would forge prescriptions. But um, later, he didn't have to. He just had so many doctor friends that, uh, that, that helped out. And, of course, it's hard to make a value judgment about that. I mean, they do any service, by like good service, by doing that. I mean, the guy died at 59 years of age. Who knows? Did it prolong his life or did it shorten his life? I don't know. But he was a morphine. I mean, he was taking drugs uh, to the very, very end. It wasn't morphine, although he was still using morphine, I think, in the 50s, because uh, one of the TV directors talked about it. I think it was the one that directed him in Rawhide, that he would kind of disappear and then reappear full of energy. But he carried a satchel of medicines around him, just a little doctor's bag of medicines. And Sid Charisse talked about this on Silk Stockings. Other people talked about it, too. If you had any kind of ailment, he had a remedy. In, in fact, I don't know if it, I interviewed, he interviewed um, a pharmacist from whom he got the cough medicine that had, I don't know if it was an opioid base, but it was something that um, it was certainly it was not over the counter, that's for sure. And that's what he was just Oh, there was a name for it. It's not, it's not in existence anymore, but it was a very, very, kind of like a codeine-based cough medicine that he was always taking and dripping on, dripping and on the set. But, uh, uh, he was the one that claimed he first told people about antihistamines. So if they had a cold or something, he says, hey, I've got a new drug for you. You need to try it. And so it would be an antihistamine. Uh, he had his ear to the ground. It came to medicines. Anybody who was sick, he had something for them. I, I don't you know. Was he a bit of a hypochondriac? Some of his coworkers thought so, yes. There were times when he was off drugs. It wasn't a continuous pattern, but um, it, 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 the art did span his whole life. But there were periods during Warner Brothers when he got very, very fit, played a lot of tennis, swam very, very active. It was with Taron Byrne. And during those times, he was not on drugs. Um, sometimes health issues put him back on drugs. Sylvie talked about some very, very, very painful adhesions he had from past surgeries some uh, sinus infections, but when he when he was really sick, he tended to turn to something to help him. Downtimes in a career, he was never solvent, always owed money, went through bankruptcy, and uh, at times um, when his career was not doing well, that triggered uh, the drug use also. Although, you know, during Mr. Moto's, he was, he was not being paid very much at all. I, I mean, I'm I, I've got the records for that. I'm who's paid like ten thousand dollars a picture. It was it was a pittance, and he could not stay. He just had above water um, with that smallest salary because he still owed a lot of money in Europe to people who had lent him money, um, including the very very famous writer Arthur Krauss. And he was always getting a letter from Krauss's lawyers saying, "Hey, you know, when are you going to when are you going to pay us?" And there were also doctors in England that were bugging him for delinquent payments. 
I kind of more bounce around his filmography. I've never sat down and watched them all kind of in order. But one of the things that always strikes me about Laurie is it seems like his weight yo-yoed quite a bit. Was that related to the drugs at all, or was that just him not being you know the tennis player that he was at some points versus others? I think all it had to do with drugs. Some of it had to do with simply he kind of kept that baby fatness in his face. Of course, that's one of the reasons Fritz Lang was so interested in having Laurie play um, the murderer in M. And just one reason is she still had that kind of chubby fleshiness that a child might have. And there was that kind of irony there that he still looked like a child and preying on children. There were periods, some of his heaviest drug use was during the moto period, and he was quite lean. But he was also quite lean at Warner Brothers, uh, and he wasn't using drugs. But he had a, a myriad of health issues. That um, And he was never good on exercise. I mean, Lloyd did not exercise. And he also, later in life, became a huge, huge eater. And when they were making um, The Last Fist of David, was that at the collector's item episode, the pilot with Vincent Price and Tommy Gomez, the director, or was it the producer, I don't know, Herb Meadowak, his name was, he told me that the, that, that, uh, the filming was catered by Brittenham's, I think, some famous caterer uh, for film sets. And uh, Lauren Gomez would fill these service-side plates, just huge, and uh, kind of have a contest who could eat more. And they, they worried that Laurie was just going to pop. It was a sense like he didn't care about his health anymore. How he changed his look, I always found very, very interesting, even without makeup. I mean, look at Laurie and M, and Crime and Punishment, and Multi Falcon, and The Raven. And it wasn't just that he had aged. It was more like a morphing from one thing to another. And as, as, as he physically changed, also came new and different uh, like sensibility. That, that, to me, is the most interesting thing. In the early days, when he first came to this country, he was so earnest, so eager to make his mark. I was, you know, I wanted to be a serious actor. He wanted to stay over. He wanted to share sinister roles. And then later at Warner Brothers with Bogart, he was this ironic and kind of off-center character. And there was a little bit of disillusionment and distance in the characters he played. And then, Later, and, and, and with the studio star system, and later yet, somebody described him who was his makeup man. He was like this big, fat candle with the flesh just melting off of him. That's what he looked like to the makeup man. Square shoulder from the longer square. They were drooping, and Lori was very sensitive about that. So they built up his shoulders when he was in five weeks in the balloon. But all of a sudden, he's very heavy. He cannot do a scene without clinging to a cigarette. When um, Jerry Luke warned him to Draw the cigarette for some scenes. I, I don't know if it's sad, but it's sad sack was the passy. He just almost broke down and said, No, I can't do it. I need that prop. So, but how physically different he looked. I mean, if you look at Joel Cairo and then you look at him and like the passy, you wouldn't even think it's the same man. Especially to think that they're only a little 20 odd years apart. We all change in 20 odd years, but this is just so dramatic. And, and speaking, you, you mentioned that you were interested in, uh, and Laurie's cartoon image, you know, the cartoons that Warner Brothers did, Hollywood's style, Rapid, the Rabbit, things like that. To me, it was really interesting that this thick-lipped, bulging-eyed figure, uh, that was the image that they used. And that's the likeness that Laurie signed away in his contract. I mean, they were able to use any image, but they didn't. What they seized upon for his cartoon caricature, but it wasn't the lean Laurie from Maltese Falcon or any of the Laurie Greenscape movies. But they paged back to Stranger on the third floor, you know, where he, where he had those bulging eyes. And, and, um, 
an image that lent itself to overstatement. You know, one of the sharper edges, the bulging eyes and the voice were some easy targets, or targets for impersonation. It was also a figure that better fit his screen image as a foreigner, you know, an outsider who hinted at things better left unknown. Um, Laurie was always searching for an identity. He was always a mysterious figure, Tom said, and he never quite knew where he was from. But uh, then we get into changes in appearances. But it was always interesting to me that Warner Brothers, basically they were marketing their own movies. They wanted to use that likeness to mark their own movies, but they drew on an image from Laurie in an earlier, an earlier film. The one that he looked with, the splayed teeth, the horrible teeth. He had those replaced by the time he did face behind the mask and uh, you know the bulging lips. He became quite handsome at Warner Brothers. You know, there's Joel Cairo and Mask of Demetrius and all that. He was a very, very handsome man. And um, you know, not so when he was doing stage on the first floor, of course. M is hailed today as being you know, this classic film, terrific acting, wonderful pacing, everything about it is terrific. Was it seen as being that groundbreaking when it first came out? It was because Lang was, you know, he had such an international reputation, and this was his first sound film. So it, it was groundbreaking, but it was less groundbreaking in this country. They really didn't know what to do with a film with more of a social theme, a character who was both repulsive and sympathetic. They didn't want to advertise him. What are we going to do with Laurie in this film? Well, they kind of threw him with Karloff and Lugosi, and they advertised it as a horror film. And it, it didn't do very well, of course, first time around. I mean, it's become classic, but altogether in Europe, yeah, it was groundbreaking at the time. And it feels like that movie helped set the template for a lot of the films that he would be in when it came to his American roles. Well, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's too bad, but he was typecast from the very, very beginning, and more so because he was in a film that was bigger than life. Um, it's so memorable. He never stepped out from underneath that, although, you know, I love him in his comedy roles, and he loved doing comedy, and he did so much comedy on stage. And he, he he did so much stage work, historical dramas, comedy, everything. He did everything on stage in those years that he, he kind of paid his dues. But I enjoy most in things like I'll Give a Million. And actually, one of my favorite films, and this, this everybody disagrees with me on this, but is Silk Stockings. And even though Laurie was not well at the time, he absolutely loved doing that movie. And it was Louis Mamoulian who knew Laurie personally and said, you know, the real Laurie is not being used. Here's this funny man. His, his talents are being so... Oh, there's a phrase about Hollywood wasting his talents. I don't know. A reviewer said it. They used as something, but not his talents. Mamoulian really appreciated the person of Peter Laurie and how much was being wasted, how much it could be turned to good advantage on the screen, how charming and witty he was and humorous. It's like, this is not being let out of the bag. Well, it was, it was Mamoulian who said, you know, I'm going to put you in this movie. And he danced, and he sang. He absolutely loved it. It, it made no difference in his career. It didn't really redirect it. But this is what he wanted to do, is go out from beneath the you know, these more sinister roles. Although by this time, the sinister roles had become somewhat comfortable. He didn't have to work very hard. He knew what he was doing. He played every, every strain of this kind of role. So he had to barely lift his little finger. Like, what do you want? Well, just play Peter Laurie. Fine. Okay. I'll give you what you want. It became a lot lazier. I mean, partly because his health was so poor toward the end, he just didn't have the energy. But 
as much as he wanted to work harder and play comic roles, and they certainly were hard for him, especially the dancing and stuff, stockings, um, he could always just kind of sit back and do something sinister and just collect the check. And people would be very happy for him just to be Peter Laurie. And he would say to directors, that's just what you want, right? And they say yes. And he'd say, fine, that's what you get. I, I think my favorite role of his, other than you know the Maltese Falcon, is probably his turn in um, Arsenic and Old Lace. Brilliant in that. But again, I'm sure that he's playing more of a Peter Laurie role, but he he plays it so well. Nobody else could play that role. Yeah, absolutely. He came to St. Kemper with a lot of ideas for his character. And then he came to in a very, very quiet way. He didn't just simply put his way in front of the camera. He said, well, what do you think about my doing this? And Capra was like, wow, that's great. And Capra said, like 70%, 75% of that role is was him. It's what he made of the role. You mentioned Stranger on the Third Floor, and I see a lot of parallels between that and something like M. And I don't know if that's just because of him being kind of typecast into those M roles, you know? Well, that kind of puts me back to this kind of insider-is-outsider thing that I mentioned to you. And um, one of the most interesting dichotomies in Laurie's professional life, for me at least, and, and there are so many, is that he was always an insider who wanted out, and yet an outsider who wanted in. He was someone caught in the star system, which circumscribed his career with typecasting, yet he reached through the bars and afforded some kind of artistic freedom. He always tried to rise above that. But you know, conversely, he always the outsider. He was always the outsider, always the foreigner who you know, prowled it to the frame. He, but he wanted to be inside. He wanted to be part of something larger and to, and to be American. Emblematically, there was Bogart on one side, the insider who represented screen success, and uh, on the other on the other side was Brecht, who would not compromise, you know, his artistic ideals. And later, Laurie had to choose between Hollywood limelight or the dim lights of, of the East Berlin stage, because he was invited to come over there uh, when Brecht left this country in the late 40s, because of the UAC period. Of course, he also returned to America after making uh, Death of Lauren on the Lost One in 1851, but for, for many reasons, I suppose. Uh, poor health, I think, was one of them, and his accident to drugs. Laurie once told Burl Lives that when it came time to, to, live, to live under a bridge, he'd do that. But until then, he was going to go first class. Well, there was no first class post-war, you know, East Berlin, However disappointed he was with Hollywood, it was his home. Backing up a little bit further, Laurie was so unlike most of the immigrants that came here, most of the refugees. I mean, Laurie had his way paid. He'd already made films in England. He'd already adjusted himself to the British filmmaking, kind of one step removed from American filmmaking. But for me, the, the refugees that came over, they, they suffered such a sense of culture shock and feelings of isolation. Um, it was Thomas Mann who referred to America's soulless soil. They just thought of America as a temporary residence, a stopover, and they maintained their culture in exile. And unlike Laurie, they behaved as outsiders who looked on insiders such as Laurie as artists who had sold themselves commercially who stepped up commercially and stepped down artistically, is what I'm trying to say. Lots of times, but Laura used to attend these soirees at Salka Fertel's home. She was a famous screenwriter at the time, and she collected a lot of the refugees, immigrants, in her, her circle. And Laurie would come in. He wasn't treated all that well sometimes, because he was, this, he was the star that admitted it, but he sold himself for fame from that point of view. And she was a little uncomfortable and sometimes just kind of started playing the party clowns to, to sidestep 
the more seriousness uh, of this. But uh, these were people who, you know, continued to read German newspapers, spoke German, you know, listened to German broadcasts, and, and, and looked for the day they'd return to, you know, reestablish democracy and all. So that's how sort of thing. Lori didn't burn bridges. I mean, she burned bridges, and he forged ahead. Uh, you know, within the parameters of Hollywood, of course. I mean, he came here as a refugee, but he was here to stay. He knew that. He, he had the mission of going back, and he jumped in with both feet. Like Billy Wilder said, he were into Americana. And by that, he meant that um, this wasn't a foreign country for them. He wasn't a foreigner. This is where they belong. This is their new home. And rather than attend soirees at South of Fertiles, they prefer to Dean Russell at the Olympic Theater. Now, in fact, Laurie became the honorary second to Man Mountain Dean. And there's a number of pictures of them taken together. I mean, he tried to go to the wrestling matches and uh, blend into this, this America than hang out with the old German refugees. He, one of the most interesting juxtapositions, nothing better illustrates this insider, outsider, outsider is insider than the, um, the eternal Jew in American sports. Now, you, you, you know, my internal Jew, a German documentary that uh, wanted to prepare the German people for the final solution. It was called a masterpiece of racial hatred. And, uh, you know, it showed the Jews as these parasites that spread like a kind of a rat-like plague. In fact, they show all these rats running out of a ship. But the point, the bottom line was, they were saying that for Jewish actors, person and persona, screen persona, you know, were really one and the same. So the documentary made the point that the reason that Laura could play a child murderer is because he harbored that compulsion to kill. In this case, nice little Aryan children. But it's funny, at the same time he was doing this, I mean, it was showing, this film was showing in Germany, here's Laura back in this country playing baseball at the Mount Sinai Hospital charity baseball game. And he's rubbing shoulders with Gary Cooper and Roy Rogers and John Wayne and Fred Astaire and Buster Keaton and Jack Benny. So that's the kind of outsider-insider dichotomy that, 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 that I find fascinating. And then recently I saw the film again, RKO 281, about the making of Citizen Kane, and uh, where Louis Parsons refers to the industry employing, uh, quote-unquote, bedrugged foreigners and swarthy refugees instead of real Americans. Now, I don't know if Parsons really said this, but if not, it, it was art imitating life. Because in the film, well, that Bells is asked, who the hell do you think that could be? And he replies, I don't know, Peter Laurie. So you've got Laurie, always the foreigner, calling the edge of the frame. And of course, the best example of this is working around to your question, a stranger on the third floor. In fact, Laurie didn't even have a name in that film. It was just the stranger. And it, it, the role really harkened back to Hans Becker in M. The postman, the postman said something about, I imagine what you know, people might look like by their names, but I never imagined anybody would look like that. And instead of giving a candy to young girls, well, here he was feeding hamburger, hamburger to dogs. And, and also, like, like in M, um, the stranger aroused, you know, you know, the feelings of both sympathy and repulsion. Interestingly enough for me, Stranger in the Third Floor was also advertised as a horror thriller, just like M was, because the studio wasn't sure what to do with this film. It was just so different. That just position kind of always, always caught me. So, Laurie, seemed to be bored when he was playing these roles. Margaret Tash, who played the, the, the female in that, I mean the female uh, principal, uh, said he just seemed to be kind of bored um, always playing the same kinds of roles. But um, And he only had such small screen time in that film. I mean, it's just it's tiny. But uh, one of my favorite stories, is, I, I talk about some of the wonderful things I learned from, from the actresses, is that she said that, that when he's strangling her, 
the sense of reality came not from the situation, but from his bad breath. That he, he ate the, the smelliest, god-awful cheese with a little bit of wine at night. They shot at night a lot. And his breath was just horrible. Plus, he had pyrrhea. Other co-workers commented to me about his breath was just, just awful. Uh, until he got dentures, you know, which was, I think, the first film he did with his dentures. I think this was behind mass. But that was always the funny story from that uh, from that title that hangs with me. So when I see that film again, I always think of like, oh my god, what kind of cheese? A Limburger cheese or something? He was he was eating and breathing on her. I'm always amazed looking at his filmography and seeing just how busy he was in the 1940s. I mean, it it seemed like he was always working. If you look, in, it seems like he's got at least one movie a year after, what, 1929 or something. But the 1940s just seem crazy. Like, seeing, you know, five or six pictures come out in 1946, that's nuts. Well, yeah, you got to remember, they filmed them just so quickly. And, um, and the studio still had... Uh, uh, I don't know where, at what point, I think it was the 50s, they, they kind of divested the theater, a lot of the studios own theaters, so they can rotate, rotate these films so quickly. Um, and then they were in kind of a competition with each other, like how many films can we put out? Let's just put this on a, a Jimmy Cagney film out for two months and then put on something else. Um, Laurie, of course, was making the motos, made quite a few motos, but my God, they were shot in just a couple of weeks. And, uh, and a lot of people went to the theaters in those days. I mean, it was a huge, huge audience during those depression years. Of course, once he left Fox, which was still a mutual decision, he was so tired of playing Mr. Moto, um, he just started shuffling around from one studio to another, like RKO and Republic, and uh, I keep thinking of the Universal, too, um, until, of course, he landed at Warner Brothers. But Warner Brothers was, you know, Lorne was a product. All the actors were a product. And they're going to they're going to slot you in as many small parts as they can possibly do to get their money's worth. And um, um, Geraldine Fitzgerald complained to, me, complained to me that not only did they pigeonhole you, but you were like a tube of cheap, the, the analogy or metaphor she used was a tube of toothpaste. They're going to keep squeezing out little grubs of toothpaste um, and keep you working. The sad thing for Laurie, but you know, he didn't. People think that he was solidly at Warner Brothers from Maltese Falcon on, but actually. He wasn't. He did not sign with Warren Brothers that five-year contract until he uh, until Casablanca, until uh, the 1943. And he did not live out. He did not serve out his full five years for for other reasons. In his contract, there was a provision one. There was a con- there was a provision in his contract that he they would let him direct. And I, I'm thinking, God, Laurie, if you actually believe that Warner Brothers is going to let you direct, you're pretty naive. And of course, they never did. They never even got close to that. But he was allowed several outside pictures per year, which he, he really wanted. But he, the small print in his contract said, if we're not doing something else, you know, maybe it's got to be an A picture, we're going to let you out to do this. But every time he came close to sealing a deal on another outside picture, they would rush in, rush in into something else. So he really never got the chance to get out from under the, the Warner Brothers' thumb. But, you know, Jack didn't like it at all. Uh, he wasn't respectful toward the, the, the front office. They wanted to just use him and use him, and I don't want to say exploit, but recycle him as much as they possibly could. But they did that to pretty much everyone in those days, especially the, the character actors, the smaller people. I mean, stars like Bogart even would do several films a year. Laurie would be twice that many because she had a smaller role and he could just jump from film to film. Those guys did quite a few films together, and I imagine they had a pretty good relationship off-screen as well as on-screen. Murray did not have much to do off-screen with Sidney Greenstreet. I mean, uh, he was terribly respectful, and I 
came by an interview late in my search for Lois, or Lois simply talked about what a fine, fine actor and human being that Green Street was. But um, Bogart, I should have reread those pages in, in my book about, about the two of them, but um, there was an attitude for the front office that they shared. Uh, I don't want to call it a lack of respect, but uh, the actor who opens the door in Casablanca, small actor, he also is in um, To Have It, Have Not, the fat fellow with the beret, I think slaps the call, and I can't think of his name. But he said uh, Bogart was someone who called a spade a spade, and Laurie was the same. You know, they saw through all the pomp and pretension of Hollywood. They were on the same page about that. But, uh, yeah, there was a close friendship. Uh, Laurie drank a great deal more because uh, he was kind of hanging out with Bogart. I know that when uh, Bogart died in some of the interviews, we did real realize how deep Laurie's feeling for Bogart was and she read some of the comments he made about Bogart after his death. I mean, for, of course, he's calling him just a, a tremendously fine actor who didn't get his due or uh, the respect, but for not saying he got, what, Academy Awards? I mean, he did get his due and he was respected as being a fine actor, but I think as much as Laurie was lamenting the loss of so many co-workers during those years, like Sneaker East Street, Humphrey Bogart, he was lamenting the loss of that period in his life that was the most productive and most enjoyable. Like Sigilowski said at Warner Brothers, he was happily unhappy. Yes, he was pigeonholed, his talent was somewhat circumscribed, he was kept uh, kept behind the bars, he tried to, he reached out and uh, for little pieces of self-expression and all that sort of thing, but he he was unhappy. He had to fight so hard to get that role in Three Strangers. It was a romantic role. And when um, Howard Koch pushed for that, Jack Warner's like, are you crazy? Laurie in a romantic role? What are you thinking? Well, Koch and Laurie put it over, and uh, and it's one of my favorite films. And Joan Loring, who co-starred him in The Verdict, and also Three Strangers, was just this young, impressionable girl who just madly fell in love with him. But it was so hard to break that typecast or convince the front office that, hey, can we put him in something else besides these Eric Ambler war espionage uh, stories? Of course, finally, those ran out. The Lori Green Street, some were Ambler stories, some were not. But they kind of, after the war, they kind of ran their course. And then Lori finally did get out beneath he did the chase, and he did, um, and he did Black Angel. So finally, you know, he did he did get out to do some other films and some really some very good films. Um, and that's when he kind of eased into the noir. And of course, unfortunately, that's when he got the Beast of Five Fingers too. By then, he'd seen the writing on the wall. He hated the movie. Would not behave during filming. Constantly clowned around with the exasperation of his coworkers. He knew he was leaving. And by that point. Mickey Rooney's manager, um, Sam Stiefel, had kind of um, uh, encouraged him to, to end his time with Warner Brothers and sign a private partnership with Mickey Rooney. And Laurie did that with the um, expectation that he would be able to take some control of his career and be able to better pick, it, pick the, the projects that he might be able to finally direct because he, he wanted to move in that direction. He hoped Warner Brothers would help him. That never happened. Um, but he hoped that with the Rooney Laurie Incorporated that he would be able to, to change, broaden his career, but uh, that never happened either. He was pretty disillusioned by 1949 when he declared bankruptcy and decided to go back to Europe. Just kind of go back and 
it, actually, it was kind of an accident. He uh, had declared bankruptcy, but just before he had declared bankruptcy, he uh, had been engaged for a tour of Skull Theaters where he did kind of his old vaudeville act. Um, you know, a woman would stand up in the audience and, and say something that he disagreed with, and he'd you know do a he'd shoot her, you know, playfully shoot her, and she'd fall down, and people would gasp and all that sort of thing. Um, and he'd read that Allan Poe Telltale Heart and all and all that. But um, the reason he wanted to do that tour is because it would post date the bankruptcy hearing and filing and all that sort of thing, and he'd be able to keep the money. They wouldn't be able to get their hands on it, but what he earned in England. But at that point, um, Karen Burns said um, that he wasn't well, and she wanted to book him into a, a sanatorium in Vigerskirchheim in, 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 in Germany. And that's actually how he got back to Germany. I mean, some people have written that, oh, he, he went back to Germany to work with Brecht and all this stuff. And no, no, it was just a kind of a coincidence that she was from Germany and she knew about the sanatorium. Lori was really in trouble with the drugs at that point and said, hey, you know what? Um, we need to book you into something. And right after the, the Stoll Theater tour, he did Double Confession. And Anakin, the director, told me that Lori just pushed everybody off the screen. He was so out of control. And he said he'd never directed anybody on drugs. And uh, one of the one of his coworkers said, you know, Billy Hart Hartnell, if I recall, you know, threatened to kill him because Laurie was. You can see the film; you can tell he's he's on drugs. And that, at that point, Karen said, you know, we need to get you somewhere. That we need to have you taken care of. And he just found himself in Germany, and then he, and that's from there. Of course, he discovered you know, the, the project, the lost one, which I, you know, I won't go into here, and maybe it's that one day. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Stranger on the Third Floor. So we were talking a little bit as far as this film really setting the stage for so much film noir, and it's just uh, as we talked about, it's a little, it's a little strange because Boris Ingster is not a name that flows off the tongue for even I would say a lot of cinephiles. You know, if you go up to a lot of people, they won't necessarily even pinpoint this as being one of the earliest. They might say it's one of the earliest film noirs, but I know that there's a whole lot of debate about that. I mean, it's almost like, I think I compared it before when I was talking about the two movies that bookend film noir and people have, you know, it's almost like throwing raw meat to a pack of dogs. It's like kind of coming into a room full of film critics and saying, what's the first and last movie of the film noir pantheon? <laughs> because well, they're going to go nuts. What would you say in answer to that question? Well, after seeing this one, I would almost say Stranger on the Third Floor. Seems like a pretty good beginning place. And then I usually end up going with um, Touch of Evil as one of the last ones. Same. Oh, see, I, I would say this movie for the beginning, and I would say Night Moves for the end. All the way up to, what, 74? Yeah. When I started reading about film noir years ago, I just sort of always read over and over again about Touch of Evil being the last place. And I guess I just sort of accepted that. But I don't know. I think I think there are definitely some titles that could sneak in there. And I know some people would go all the way back. They would use Wells as being their their watermarks and say that Citizen Kane is the first film noir and that it's got the deep focus photography. It's got the voiceover narration at times. It's got the fractured time structure, the, the use of flashbacks. But I, I'm not sure. Isn't that 41? Again, uh, completely blown out of the water. 
I have to wonder if he saw this. I mean, I, I assume that he did, but I don't, I haven't been able to find anything on record of him talking about it. Although I also can't imagine <laughs> any interview where, where he would come out and say, well, yes, all, all of those things in Citizen Kane, I borrowed some of them from this little movie called Stranger on the Third Floor. I've got the poster right here. I'm a huge fan. I mean, he definitely was very humble when it came to the, the work that Greg Toland kind of taught him and some of these things. But yeah, I, I, I've never really seen that uh, that discussion as far as anything that might have influenced his visual style. I know that he would go back to, say, Ford and say that Ford was a, a very eminent influence on him when he was making Kane and then his subsequent films. But yeah, I would be very curious to see if he uh, ever copped to seeing Stranger on the Third Floor. Should we talk more about film noir? Or should we talk just about how much we love Peter Lorre? I mean, they kind of go hand in hand. It's amazing to look at his filmography and just see how many movies he was cranking out just year after year to be in like three and four movies at a time. I mean, we talked about the, uh, you know, RKO uh, owing him some stuff and him kind of trading out and then being a stranger on the third floor. And then also you'll find out, I think, within a matter of a, a couple of days. But, I mean, he just was cranking through these things and so many classic titles. And I know we'll talk. Uh, next week, Maitland, about The Chase, which is, uh, to me, another favorite. And again, he's only in there for a few minutes. I don't think he has the, the the reach that he does in Stranger on the Third Floor. It's not like he's the menacing figure that he is in this. But he definitely, he always brings so much joy to me whenever he shows up on screen. And so just, you know, he was the, the kind of an actor who I would go out of my way to track down movies that he's in just to see his performance, even if he's in here for five minutes. You know, it's just like, give me more Peter Lorre. That's what I want. But this also, I think, leads us to have to speak about the way movies were made at that time. Hollywood really was a machine for movie making, and actors who were under contract, as Laurie was, made movie after movie after movie. I think people who grew up, I guess, starting in the 70s, find it really hard to imagine what filmmaking was like at a time when actors were under contract and they made movies because they were told this is what you're doing next week you just finished a picture you have three days off and we have another movie starting on tuesday and uh... show up at eight thirty on the mgm lot because that's what you're doing it was a, an entirely different way of making movies that I, I believe has become more and more distant and hard to imagine for people who are not ardent movie cineasts, I guess, or who didn't grow up watching movies that were made, as I did, at the tail end of the classic Hollywood era of movie making. Movies really were a product and were churned out like sausage or cupcakes. And it's astonishing that so many movies made under those circumstances turned out to be so remarkable. It's hard to say whether that was the uh, the guiding influence of one person, as it was in some cases, or whether it was the serendipitous combination of two or three people who wound up on a particular film, or whether it was just good luck that certain movies just came out incredibly well. 
I'm trying to remember who told me this story recently, but someone was talking about the way that the audience at the Oscars looked in our era versus the classic era. And just that in our era, everybody has a, a look of fright on their face because this film might be their last big hit, you know, and you'd never know from one day to the next, if this is your last hurrah, if they will cast you in the next film, how your career is going to go after this, as opposed to the golden age of Hollywood, when you would look out at the audience and everybody was smiling because they were all under contract and they knew where their next dollar was going to be coming from. They were being taken care of by, you know, Papa Warner and, and Mr. Mayor and all of these people. So I, I wish I could remember who told me that story, but I was just like, wow, I wonder if that's really true or not. But I can see, you know, having done freelance work versus being a salaried employee, I'm definitely much happier as a salaried employee, <laughs> employee than I was as a freelancer because I want to know where that next check is coming from. And I want to know that I am a proven commodity and that I can be put on the A picture, the B picture, or, you know, loaned out to another studio, but at least I'm going to be working. I think a lot about that point that Maitland just brought up where, you know, there are a lot of film fans who complain about how film in general has, the quality of film has decreased. And, you know, that's why it's called the golden age of Hollywood, because so many classics came out then. And you kind of have, and certainly that system was flawed in a lot of ways, but you kind of have to wonder what that magical equation is. Like why we got, like, did we get so many classic films from that time because they just churned out so many films and turned it into a science? Like, I, I mean, I don't think that's a question anyone can really answer, but it's definitely one that I think about a lot. I think there is a degree to which you can answer that question because you can say if you have a system whereby you can guarantee that you are turning out 130 films a year, the odds increase in your favor that, I don't know, 10 of them will be really good movies. Whereas the way movies work today, studios make 15 films a year and how many of them are going to be good? Four? Yeah. Three? I mean, how many of them are as good as Stranger on the Third Floor? <laughs> not many. It's sheer numbers. And it's not just at the top of the list. The movies that get the biggest stars, the best directors, the best writers, the best production crews. It's also the, the films at the bottom. And I don't mean qualitatively. I just mean the movies that have the fewest resources. There just aren't as many of them. So... You know, people speak of 1939 as being a really great year in filmmaking. Well, look at how many movies the studios were cranking out. Of course, some of them were going to be really terrific. And the number that some equated to has a great deal to do with how many movies were just being made, period. And we're not saying, we're not even counting the Mon Pa Kettle movies or the Blondie and Dagwood movies. We're just saying, of the movies that were on the relatively good tier of pictures that were being made, there were so many more of them. And therefore, if only 5% of them were good, it was more movies than you see now, because studios are putting all their resources into three, four, five films a year. 
Yeah, I also kind of have to wonder if maybe that's why it seemed like there was more innovation for projects like Stranger on the Third Floor, because people were working within this system and, you know, they agreed to make a film in a certain kind of genre. And because so many were being made, they could sort of go from there. Whereas exactly like you're saying now, it's, you know, you're in a certain genre, you're expected to make a superhero action movie or a horror movie or a romance. And it seems like, and maybe this, I'm just too close to it, but it seems like there's not as much room for creativity. I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the reasons that there was room for creativity was because there was a whole tier of movies that if you brought them in on time and on budget and you've used some actors who were under contract, so the studio needed to keep them working, nobody really cared what you did. They just cared that you got a movie made and you used these people and you didn't go over time and you didn't go over budget. And there was, I think, a strange kind of liberation in working that way because you pretty much could do what you wanted as long as you did a couple of things that were required of you, that you started on the 24th and you were done by the 7th of the next month. And you didn't bring, you didn't keep people in for overtime. You, you started at 8 a.m. and you had people out by 7. The way you phrased that made me think about, in terms of RKO, somebody like Val Luton, who did exactly that. He, you know, checked off those three things they expected and got everything in under budget and on time and turned out some totally unexpected films as a result. It was what uh, has been called the genius of the system that if you could work within it, if you had a mind to, you could actually do something interesting. And if you didn't have a mind to, you could just knock out movies that went into theaters, did what they did, and nobody really cared. If you could work the system until it worked for you, you could do some great movies. Well, we've also had so many years of people being able to pour through these films, I mean, especially now with the age of video and everything, to be able to go back and look at a lot of these films, probably just the tip of the iceberg, but then be able to recommend these movies to us, to, to, to be the tastemakers and to help bring some of these films to light, because I'm sure for every stranger on the third floor, there probably is a hundred mom pot kettle movies that just, eh, maybe they're not that good, but you know, for every one of these, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the Mr. Moto films, <laughs> so I can see, you know, for every one of these, there's five or six Mr. Moto films, but you know, the, it was a factory. It did churn out so much stuff. So with this, I'm sure that we are just getting the, the cream of the crop. So I'm sure some of this stuff looks better in hindsight in that we know what the great movies are, or at least we think we know. And I'm sure that there are still discoveries being made all the time. of like, oh my God, did you see this movie from 1937? This is fantastic. And hopefully we get more of those as the years go on. Because I'm sure that there's a shit ton of stuff that's out there buried that really deserves a second look, as opposed to some things where it's just like, yeah, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I don't really need to see that particular film. Well, and also there are things like, there are those enormous series of movies, like the Mr. Moto movies, or the Charlie Chan movies. I, I recently looked at a bunch of Charlie Chan movies, and it doesn't really matter why, but <laughs> one of them, which was no more distinguished 
in its personnel or its production values than any of the others, Charlie Chan at the Circus turned out to be really interesting just because something came together on that, something that had to do, I think, with the, with the locale, uh, with the milieu of it, it was it was shot using uh, a circus troupe that wintered in San Diego, I think. So you had this enormous amount of circus background that you couldn't have mocked up in a studio because they were wintering in San Diego and basically said, "Yeah, sure, come and make a movie and use our performers and use our caravans and use our encampment." which made a really ordinary Charlie Chan mystery into something vastly more interesting. That's the kind of thing you only find, frankly, if you watch way too many movies. But who am I to criticize? Because I'm a, I'm a big offender. You know, we've been gushing praise about this movie throughout the whole thing. And it's funny reading some of the reviews of the film from the time. I mean, uh, the... Uh, New York Times critic Bosley Crowther said, The notion seems to have been that the way to put a psychological melodrama across is to pile on the sound effects and trick up the photography. And then the variety had to say, Boris Inkster's direction is too studied, and when original, lacks the flair to hold attention. It's a film too arty for average audiences and too humdrum for others. You know, and here we are just like, yeah, this is fantastic. And the whole idea that I was just saying, as far as, you know, people will find these movies and bring them to us, sometimes it's really against the tastemakers of the day. It's We have to look at these things with fresher eyes than the people at the time who were just like, oh, geez, look at this. This is just a you know bunch of hooey up on screen. Yeah, and I think it also has to do with, I mean, certainly all three of us really love film noir. And to look at it through that lens, I'm sure is very different than being a critic who is just watching a lot of everything that's coming out and maybe doesn't have a specific genre focus and is, is taking it that way. Granted, I will, if you know, that time machine materializes, I will definitely arm wrestle Bosley Crother. I can also say, you know, it, during my years at TV guide, I, I was reviewing 550 some odd movies a year. And you know what? That's exhausting. Oh right? yeah. I mean, you just, you, you go into two, three screening rooms a day and there's a point at which I think your critical judgment, if not destroyed, is a little bit dampened by the sheer volume of what you're seeing. And certainly the truly extraordinary movies will absolutely stand out no matter what. But the movies whose virtues are more subtle and subdued, I think might sometimes get by you because you're just plain tired. Your eyes hurt. you you're spending all of your waking hours in screening rooms. You're ruining your marriage. Uh, all of that stuff actually does have uh, have an impact. All for a lousy 12 extra bucks a week. Exactly. <laughs> a lousy 12 extra bucks. I think it may have been 12 extra bucks a, a year. I think you're right. Well, because median income for like a middle class family, I think it was around $1,000. So if he got 12 extra bucks a month, he would be making like a huge raise. Yeah, I was curious about that myself. And I was like, yeah, no, probably not a, probably not an hour, <laughs> probably not a week, 
And I was wondering if it was a month or a year, and I was just like, well, it's enough to pay for that $60 a month apartment in what I presume to be New York City. They actually do say that it's New York, and I think that the first place you know that is from a newspaper clipping, which, of course, makes this film that much more dear to my heart since I'm a native New Yorker. I've always been curious to see a map of the United States or maybe even the world with all of the 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 movies that we consider canon films noir and where they take place because I always feel that there's definitely a huge difference in the way that a New York film noir feels versus a Los Angeles versus a San Francisco and then all of those great ones that take place in between they all have their uh, their own unique takes on things and uh, I've always been curious to see if there's certain things that come out in a New York noir more than a San Francisco or Los Angeles noir. I mean, just the difference between a, uh, you know, the big sleep versus the Maltese Falcon seems like there's a huge gulf there of the, the way that those two detectives are. and They kind of reflect their cities to me. A lot of the New York films are weirdly my favorite. Like and sort one? of like Maitland was saying, it, it could be a bias because I, I live in Philadelphia and I've spent a lot of time in that city. So maybe it's just a familiarity thing. I mean, I wake up screaming, which came out the following year is, has sort of a similar vibe. I do truly love Detour's walk down Riverside drive. That is so great. Given that it is a hundred percent shot on a studio set and a very meager set at that. And yet I love it dearly because they're walking on Riverside drive. I want to say that Ulmer, Ulmer put his movies all over the place, but the other one that always comes to mind for me is, is Carnegie Hall. So he definitely had a, a soft spot for New York. As everybody should. All right, we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. A scar, knife wound, no other marks. We're waiting, Mr. Scott. Oh, can I make you understand you've got the wrong man? I loved her. You loved her, so you killed her. That's understandable. She was all I had. So you made sure no one could take her from you. Oh, you're blind. Why would we come all this way together? I let you tell me why. Just answer three questions. How long has this woman been in Havana? Well, we got off the boat around six o'clock this evening. Eight hours ago. Had she ever been here before? you know anyone here, anyone at all? No. There is your answer. Do you still insist somebody else did it? In a place where she had just arrived, in a place where she had never been in her life before? And above all, with your own knife? It wasn't my knife. But you just admitted a moment ago it was your I knife. I didn't admit it wasn't my knife. I merely said it looked like my knife, but it wasn't. Oh, yeah. Now I remember. The knife you bought. You did buy a knife. Yes, I bought a knife! Save your strength, my friend. You may need it. 
That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of The Chase, where Maitland will be back along with Colin Gallagher. Until then, Maitland, what has been keeping you up late at night? Uh, Mostly it has been completing prep on Gay Cruise, which is the newest book in my series of reprints of vintage gay adult novels of the 70s. Uh, It will be ready, I would say, in two weeks, and uh, it's great fun. It takes place on a a refurbished yacht that has been turned into, as the back cover copy says, a gay whorehouse. And is just filled with backstory. It, it's all stories about how everybody got there, the paths that led them to where they are, and what they do once they're there. It's good fun. And it sounds like the perfect gift for Christmas. Yeah, it that is sounds indeed. amazing. Everybody should put that into somebody's stocking. And how about you, Sam? What's been keeping you up roaming the halls of the boarding house? Over at Diabolique, we're in the middle of an Italian cinema-themed season, so... I'm writing some essays, editing some other ones. There's, It's not just uh, genre cinema. It's all over the place. And at Daughters of Darkness, the podcast I co-host, we're doing some corresponding episodes. So we just finished up a couple of Art Jallo-themed episodes that are now live. And upcoming next, we're doing a complete retrospective on the films of Elio Petri, which I'm really excited about. And that's why I'm so caffeinated today. I will be sure to link over to Daughters of Darkness and Diabolique over at the website projection-booth.com, as well as, of course, a link over to Gay Cruise, where you can get the perfect perfect stocking stuffer for this holiday season so yes you also find links over there to itunes where you can rate and review the show and to patreon where you can make a donation to the show every donation every rating every review we get helps the projection booth take over the world isn't really dead. Peter Lorry, Peter Lorry, he's all right, he's all right. Peter Lorry, Peter Lorry, it's all right, he's on your side. Peter Lorry, Peter Lorry, it's all right, you can trust him. Peter Lorry, Peter Lorry, he's all right. Peter Lorry, Peter Lorry, he's a brick, he's a brick. You can count on him in trouble, even if it's really thick. Any crisis, he'll be there, like a little squidgy bear. Peter Lorry, Peter Lorry, he's a brick. a nightclub well downtown Peter Lorry, Peter Lorry always wears an evil frown Don't spit on his shoes or mess up his hair or he will shoot you dead and go back upstairs It's okay, it's alright You can trust him, Peter Lorry's on your side You can trust him with your secrets He'll give you somewhere to hide Don't you worry, don't you fret Peter Lorry is a pet You can trust that Peter Lorry He's a vet A real gentleman Never bad in 
Just like Sydney Green Street Just like Sydney Green Street In any crisis he'll be there Like a little scritchy bear That's Peter Lorry, not Sydney Green Street And you can trust him, you can trust him He's alright, he's alright You can trust this tiny person Peter Lorry's on your side Sydney Green Street does not scare him Peter Lorry likes no fear Fearless little Peter Lorry He's a brick Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.